Hello, my name is Nick Spasic, and you're listening to From and Inspired By, a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we speak with composer Steve Herlich about his work on the 1981 slasher, Madman. He's real. Lore of the campfire, telling of his horror, lost in the woods with the madman and the stars. Don't laugh at the tales, heed if you call him the Composer Steve Herlich is best known for his work on children's television programs like Shining Time Station and Reading Rainbow, the latter of which he composed the iconic theme song for. However, early on in his career, Herlich worked on the 1981 slasher film Madman, a movie made somewhat infamous by the fact that it shares a similar storyline with the contemporaneous film the Burning. Madman was released on Blu-ray back in 2015 via Vinegar Syndrome, and while there was an announcement at the time that Death Waltz would be releasing the score, here we are over three years later with nothing yet. Thankfully, the composer was more than willing to share his story of the score, as well as his illustrious career. I want to talk to you about, but I think the first thing I'm going to start with is I was doing some supplemental research for this, and I was poking around in your IMDb page to make sure I didn't miss anything, and I saw, like, you're obviously very well known for the Reading Rainbow theme, but, like, you've done music for other episodes, and one of the episodes you're credited with is the the one uh, on Pete Seeger's book, Abiyoyo. Yeah, that was one of the Reading Rainbow episodes, yes. And um I was I was curious, like did you get to work with Pete Seeger when that episode was put together? You know, Pete was featured in that episode, but I personally didn't get to work with him now. Uh uh <clears throat> I was uh he in in that episode actually scored his own book. I did all the other music for that episode in and around what he did, but for that book, it was all it was all Pete Seeger. One of the the things, like when I was digging around online, I found a, a video of you explaining how electronic <laughs> music works, and I had totally forgotten about. It. I mean, I saw that when I was a kid, and I was like, "Oh, that's fascinating!" And that's that seems like it's very it was very much like a, a like a, a primer for for like uh, the then sort of nascent art it was really early on yeah there was that was me demonstrating the fairlight uh computer music instrument uh for the first season of reading rainbow i believe it could have been the second i don't remember but you know they uh that was like the first sampler ever created and uh a lot of the music for reading rainbow was used especially in those first couple of seasons using the fairlight cmi so they wanted to come into the studio and film me talking about you know sound sampling and all that stuff 
that was a real blast actually it seems it it seems really interesting about it is because like now now you you uh are the publisher and partner of nonlinear educating incorporated um and that is helping teach people how to make things with computers that's exactly right our our website's uh, macprovideo.com and ask.video uh teach people how to do everything from making music to you know uh writing film scores to orchestration to photography graphic design that we really really uh, are about 90% audio and music related courseware how we do have a uh, we have over 70,000 videos on our site, all led by expert instructors, re- experts in their field, professionals, certified trainers, and, and uh, famous producers. How did you get into, um, like, educating? I've always loved education. Even as a student, uh, while studying at Carnegie Mellon and at the Aspen Music Festival, I was also student teaching all the time. Education's been number one on my list, and there's a main reason for that. It's because my life was changed by a great teacher, uh, a teacher I had in high school that turned my life around and got me started on my career. So I've always felt the power of education and the power of what a great teacher can bring to an, to another person's life. That seems very uh, appropriate given the amount of work you've done for programs that have aired on PBS, which are like very sort of intrinsic uh, in, into like educating people on things like, especially like your, your work in children's television, uh, not just Reading Rainbow, but also Shining Time Station, both of which I think are very formative programs for like several generations of kids at this point. They really are. Uh, you know, I didn't come to New York from Pittsburgh to to get into the education business. I actually really wanted to do commercials. <laughs> but when this kind of fell into my lap and I was able to take advantage of it, it really did start a whole career in educational TV stuff that I'm very proud of. Uh, the work I've done for Reading Rainbow, Shining Time Station, The Puzzle Place, The Magic Avengers of Mumphy, and many, many other TV series uh, uh you know, it's it's been a great and fun and exciting career. When it comes to composing music, um, I find it very interesting in that, like, you have um, so much, uh, like, educational music and you have experimental music. And then going back to, like, the very early part of your career, you, you have this slasher movie madman <laughs> madman absolutely that was one of the first uh it was really one of the first gigs i did when coming to new york i i, I can't remember the year to quite frankly i think it was 1980 or 1981 I, when was the film released do you the know film the film was released in in 80 i think it was made in 81 i don't think it got released until like early 83 yeah, well, whatever. I mean, I, I was obviously involved, as most musicians are, at the end of the production series. So I guess it was probably 83. That sounds about right. Uh, that was uh, around the same time that I just started uh, doing Reading Rainbow. We had written the theme song, and we were kind of waiting for the series to go into production because they, they loved the, our demo theme song, and they wanted us to do the whole series. 
and uh, the producer, I think, found me in one of the advertising journals that was out at that time called The Black Book. And I had a picture of me surrounded by test tubes <laughs> and weird, like, chemistry experiments with all my synthesizers. And, and the title of the ad was Synthesizer Wizardry. So I believe the producer of the series saw that, called me, and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a score for his slasher film, Madman. The, and of course I said yes, because uh, my father always told me to say yes when it came to those kinds of things, opportunities. What is the What was the experience for you as a, a composer scoring a film, especially one that's sort of like, uh, a, a, a lower budget, um, like horror film. <laughs> well, it was my first film score. Uh, so I, I was coming to it as a complete virgin, as a musical virgin. Uh, I really didn't know what to do necessarily, though I, I had a lot of experience in experimental music. And of course, in my studio that I had built in the early 80s was just filled with all the latest electronic music gear. So I had the arsenal, right? I had the audio arsenal to experiment and make things work. And of course, the producers came along and they had certain things that they wanted and they gave me direction. Uh, so I was, uh, I was experimenting my way through the whole project. I find it, I find it really great that like if you kind of go through and read either contemporaneous reviews or reviews when it was, um, Put out on Blu-ray um, in 2015 by Vinegar Syndrome, that like your score uh, frequently gets gets mentioned as one of the highlights. <laughs> I find that quite amusing. Uh, you know, they gave me about a week to score a film, so things were things were done in a hurry. It was before I could even synchronize video to audio, right? So everything was done wild. I would I would start the video and then run over and put my multi-track on and play against it. It was completely crazy. There was no synchronization available to me, at least in, in those days, because I was just starting out. So it was a 24 hour a day, one week adventure kicking out that score. And by the time I was in the middle of it, I think I was uh, in some kind of trance state. Now, uh, I, I, I know that when it was, when it was released, um, on, on DVD and Blu-ray, it was announced at the time that it was going to be released on vinyl by, by Death Waltz. Um, and uh, nothing has been heard of that since. Um, yeah, do, yeah I don't, I don't have, have any, any news on that front. Uh, I actually uh, dug into the original quarter-inch mono tapes that I had done for that and was thinking and it actually started to remix them a little bit because gee whiz they, like I said they were done in mono uh, that's kind of hard to believe in, in today's surround world but that's the way it was done in those days and I was trying to enhance them and put them into a st at least a stereo world uh, but the producers didn't want me to touch them they really just wanted the original music there so I didn't do anything uh, new or at all, actually, for the uh, release of the soundtrack. Uh, I know they've been threatening to uh, release it, threatening <laughs> it, <laughs> kind of a play on words considering the type of music, um, for a long time. But but uh, since I really have no participation in that, I haven't paid much attention to it. 
Now, the the idea that you're recording this like right at the same time that Reading Rainbow is starting, it, that just that that's something I wasn't aware of, and that just seems like that's a that's a definite like have a stylistic shift that you're having to make. Well, that that wasn't hard for me because uh, I've always been an appreciator of all kinds of music. And while I was doing Reading Rainbow, I was actually performing in an avant-garde noise band called the Electronic Art Ensemble. With with you know, we had concerts at Carnegie Hall. We were touring all the clubs in New York City and up and down the East Coast, playing really loud noise music, just crazy sound. So you know, that on top of I've always been a songwriter, right? And and my songwriting was in a sense traditional of of the time. And and uh, you know. For me, music is music, whatever form it comes in. The electronic art ensemble was that sort of um, around the same time as like the no wave scene in New York. That seems like it was right around that that late seventies, early eighties period. You know, I don't know what the no wave sign is. What is that? Uh, the no wave scene were like sort of bands like early Sonic Youth and things like that, where it was like music that that didn't like claim to be like new wave or punk uh and and, and was was very much like sort of uh not quite noise <laughs> yeah well you know we we didn't really follow traditional pop rock song form at all it was truly just textures and timbres and crazy rhythms and we had our uh it was a four four man group right and one of our members was on stage was just taking all of our sounds and throwing them into digital delays and time-based um, modulations and manipulating them in real time. Uh, we were very very loud. <laughs> I, I I my I, I think the the closest I have like in terms of a reference point for noise is probably more of like an early industrial band like Einsters and I Neubauten. Um, uh, you know, where they're just like literally banging on chunks of metal and using machinery. Uh, but, uh, no, the, the, the electronic delays, uh, I've, I've, I've seen friends work loops and things like that. And it's, it, it, it's, you know, music being created before your very eyes or it's, ears, I suppose. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, we were very well rehearsed. We we, we rehearsed often twice a week out in a in a basement in Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, so this the, the music that we played was extremely tight and exciting. And, and, and because of that, the, the audiences and the, actually even the reviewers, believe it or not, for like the New York Times and New Yorker magazine always gave us rave reviews because they saw that we weren't just out there screwing around. We really worked hard on our performances, and they were extremely interactive, and the communication between the players was at a very high level. It was a lot of fun. I think that if had we kept it going, we'd probably be 
very, very popular today. Now, one of the things, like when I've read interviews with you, um, like you've you've discussed um, your 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 work with Jordan Rudis and um, so much on Reading Rainbow and things like that. But what I was really curious about, um, because I haven't read much about it, is your work in advertising and like how like what sort of things you've worked on that people might have heard uh, and like how, how that's gone through your career. I came to New York, as I said earlier, mainly to do advertising because I heard of this person in New York who had the same synthesizer that I did. Her name was <laughs> Suzanne Ciani. Her name is still Suzanne Ciani, and we're actually uh, pretty good friends. I came here because she was making a ton of money doing sound effects and sound design for commercials. So I thought, well, I'm going to go to New York and build my own studio and and do the same thing. And I did commercials for a bunch of years, maybe three or four years. But when Reading Rainbow came along, I realized how much I love doing 30-minute uh, pieces of music or 30-minute challenges, you know, being a TV show rather than a 30-second spot Uh and then there was the advertising people themselves. Uh, they're very hard to work with. They are, they're under a lot of pressure from their clients. Everybody has to have their, their stamp of approval on everything, which means there's lots of revisions. It was, it was a crazy business. And I had uh, decided that uh, the independence that I was given as a composer to do a half-hour score was much greater and was a lot more fun for me. So I, I moved directly from advertising pretty much in the early mid eighties and just did TV from that point on TV scores. Is there, is there a reason you stuck with television as opposed to, uh, going for like more feature scores? You know, when I think back on it, I often ask myself a similar question. <laughs> I don't really know. You kind of, you kind of go with what is given to you. I mean, with Reading Rainbow, I, I knew that I would be working a year in advance, I, you know, which was unheard of for a freelance composer in New York City in the, in the 80s. But to have a TV series and they would come back every year and renew for 15, 20 more shows at a really good rate uh, kind of kept me in the fold, if you know what I mean. I was making good money and that led to other TV shows with similar commitments and you kind of, you kind of do what's, what, what falls in your lap. And I often thought about that because there's another aspect of my life. Even before I came to New York, I was the music director for Pittsburgh's equity theater, uh, and did scores for 12th night and Henry V and several others. And I came to New York, right? The, the center of theater of the world and never did any theater. So, you know, when you get to be, you know, when you move on in your career and you look backwards and you, you do say to yourselves at times, why didn't I explore that more? And I did a feature film like right out of college. Why didn't I explore to do more? Well, uh, sometimes you don't always have control over that. So you're, you're still performing uh, live. Um, I do. Um, like how, how do those, uh, performances work in the context of the, the work for which people might know you best? 
that's an r- interesting question. I don't know whether there is a relationship necessarily, except that when I first started doing live performances, I was really into modular synthesis. And so as technology changed, then I kind of, you know, start, stopped doing modular stuff and I was working in the box with, you know, with all the programs you can get in software. But now that modular synthesis started roaring back around <laughs> seven, eight years ago, I'm back into it. And I just love performing live with uh, live electronics and, and modular synthesis and, and uh, creating 3D surround environments that envelop an audience and take them on a journey. So for me, it's all about the journey. And that's the similarity between everything. Whenever I do anything from a film score to a TV score to a live performance it's all about taking the audience on a on a on a journey where they can they can be enveloped by the make believe and let their minds take take them wherever they feel the music leads them how do you create a 3d sound environment like is it is it with speakers is 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 it just like the like where you're performing yeah um Whenever I perform, I require that there is a, at the very least, a quadraphonic sound system. So what I, the way I interact with that is that I've created a very complex uh, surround environment in Apple's program Logic, where I am moving sound in in different kinds of shapes like spirals and concentric circles, all often based upon the Fibonacci ratios uh so there's this sense that a sound will start somewhere and kind of spin off in almost a spiraling shape to infinity so i'm constantly kind of feeding this process where sounds start in one place and spin off into infinity creating a uh almost if you think of it as a as a river right you can you can look at the at the water that's passing in front of you and it kind of always looks the same but if you expand your vision outwards you're seeing that it's coming from somewhere and going somewhere else so the viewer always has a chance to spend time listening to the the current the uh what's actually happening in the moment but then they can drift off and listen to what has happened in the past and follow that on its journey that sounds fantastic. I know you also occasionally do uh, planetarium concerts. Um, I've only done a few. Uh, it's something that I'm actually in development of. So if anyone out there is looking for a great planetarium performer, find me at stevehmusic.com. <laughs> um, do you have any uh, up- upcoming performances booked at the moment? I do, and I should have it in front of me. I, I will be playing in uh, Lumberville, uh, New Jersey, right across the river from New Hope, there's a uh, an electronic music festival there, and uh, I don't have it in front of me, but that's in early March. Uh, then I'll be in Berlin in May, and probably play, playing, playing locally in the Hudson Valley again in May or June. Wonderful. Sir, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Hey, Nick, I really enjoy talking about it. Um, I'm, I was kind of excited that you were a, uh, you were interested in Madman. Yeah. Uh, I don't get to talk about Madman that much. Uh, and maybe it's better that I don't, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, it was a fun experience and it, it actually opened the door and led me to a lot of other different directions. So, uh, I appreciate you, uh, giving me a ring up and, uh, bringing up all these wonderful topics. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much. Um, this episode is slated to come out. I think it'll be our first one in February. So I'll make sure to send you a link when it goes live and tag you on all of the appropriate social media accounts. Cool. And please uh, direct people to uh, stevehmusic.com as much as possible and to macprovideo.com if they're interested in education. I will. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Take care, man. You too. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks to Steve Herlick for speaking with me. You can find information about his music on Twitter at Steve H. Music or at his website, stevehmusic.com. You can find links to purchase all of the music that you heard on the show in the show notes for this episode, which are at fromaninspiredby.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at fromInspiredPod. You can subscribe to us via Apple Podcast and Stitcher as well. Please hit up the website and click on the Give Us Money button to help pay for web hosting and long-distance fees, and remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcast and Stitcher. We'll be back in two weeks in another installment of Your Favorite Soundtrack with W. David Keith, host of the Taco the Town podcast about his favorite soundtrack, Boogie Nights. Until then, thanks for listening. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. A reading rainbow.